1: I hear something on the other side.
0: Hello. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hey. Very well, thank
1: you. I'm Gene Turnbull. I'm the host of uh, The Good Event on. Horizon. And with cool. me is Susan Fox, our executive producer. Hello. Welcome to the show, Rocky Perry. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so you've got how many books in the uh, Luke Vanderloft series?
0: Uh, right now, there, there's four books out. The last one came out in November, and then I have I have the fifth book is coming out uh, February twenty second, so right around the corner.
1: So I, I remember the the first one uh, when the first one came out, we helped you publicize the book a little bit, right? Uh, that wasn't very long ago. You're turning these things out at a pretty furious rate.
0: I know. It's, it's, it's funny because I, I hang out with a lot of writers at different conventions and stuff, and they, they get a little frustrated with me. But yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I just can't stop. And then it's, it's funny because I always convince myself I'm going to move to a different project. Like in between, I'll write a different book. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the end and I'm like, no, I just got to keep going. It's like popcorn.
2: So, you can't stop.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's like I can't. So, so you can't write I,
1: just one.
0: Hey, 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 no, don't, <laughs> don't interrupt you. So, so it, it, it might have been a better idea to plan out, uh, a, you know, like a three book series instead of a 10. So, you know, here I am just powering through. I'm working on book six right now. Uh, and I just, I guess I won't stop, but I'm putting out, I'm probably finishing about two a year. My the
2: goodness. first one
0: came out, uh, 2010. Or maybe it was 2011. I can't can't keep track.
1: So for our listening audience, uh, can you describe the Luke Vanderloft series?
0: Yeah, the Luke Vanderloft series, you know, the questions I get most often is, you know, what's it about? What's it like? Uh, Who's it written for? And, uh, you know, in the beginning, I never knew exactly how to answer this. But, you know, having had some experience trying to best explain it to people, um, it's really a book about, uh, a s- humanity, right? I mean, all the characters, like most writers, are kind of based on me. They're autobiographical. Uh, it's about my experiences. And it's all wrapped in a fantasy world. Um, it's a little different than, than your typical fantasy in the sense of, uh, for instance, Tolkien's work is very much a reflection of European mythology. mm mm-hmm. um, And my work is really a reflection of American mythology. So there's sort of like homages to the Civil War and Prohibition-era gangsters and, uh, you know, colonization. And so, you know, I was inspired very much by um, Twain and, you know, Fenimore Cooper and and some of these guys. But don't get me wrong, it's still very much wrapped around fantasy. So there's dwarves Mm -hmm. and there's elves, but... Uh, My dwarves and elves may um, live in a world that's much structured, much more based upon American mythology as opposed to European mythology. Uh, So less feudal peasants and knights in armor and those kind of things.
1: Tell us a little bit about uh, your investigation into American mythology. What kinds of uh, what kinds of phantasmagorical creatures Mm -hmm. and beasts did you discover in your research?
0: You know, it's funny, like my, the origins of my interest in that really come from, uh, my, my, uh, unique story. You know, I, I'm, I was diagnosed with dyslexia at seven, 1982. And, uh, I didn't learn to read until I was 10. So what I, my experience with books was what my mother read to me. So my mother pretty much read the classics. So I'm, I very much grew up hearing, uh, you know, Steinbeck and Hemingway, and then back to, you know, your campfire poets and, you know, Thoreau and Whitman, and then even, you know, those writers that came right after the the founding of America and Fenimore Cooper and all those guys. So very much my fantasy land was, uh, you know, very much a historical fantasy world. Um, so. When it comes to what kind of uh, creatures manifest out of that American mythology, they're almost all the type of things you might see a uh, a hunting party or a fur trading party running across, or you know, uh, 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 some kind of creature in the the wooded uh, old woodlands of the Oregon Trail. So, uh, less dragons and uh, sea monsters, and more
1: more oh, Sasquatch and
0: Sasquatch and, uh, things like that. Dire bears and things like that.
1: The lead character, Luke Banderloft, tell us a little bit about him. And he's not quite completely human. He, he could pass for human from a distance,
0: but he isn't. No, he's not human. He, he's, uh, what, um, most of the people in the area, he, the story begins calls him a silver elf because his skin sort of has a silver tone to it. Um, and he is an elf. Um, but he's, there's no one else, uh, none of his other people are anywhere near him when, when the story begins. Um, he has wings, um, which he's always kept very short at the beginning of the first book uh, just to try to fit in. Being different is never easy. That's kind of one of the, uh, the, the themes of the first book. Um, so he tries to fit in, and, and later on, you, you know, we, we get his first flight and those sort of things. But uh, he's very much a, a character who's full of uh, question and just trying to stay out of trouble, trying to survive um, and deal with being different um, and and slowly learning those lessons you learn where there's certainly people who can identify with your, your struggles and and they'll help you out. Uh, and then there's other people looking to take advantage of you. Ooh, who, are, who are those people? Who are the bad guys? Who are, who are those people? You know, well, the first book opens up, and, and of course, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but, very much the idea of the, the opening of the first book is Luke is at his lowest point. He's, he's near death. He, he's, you know, struggling to stay alive and his choice is to just sort of embrace that death and go with it. Or he can accept the help of some people who are much less than savory. So it's this choice that, that, you know, a lot of people are faced with in life. Do you, which, which evil do you choose? Um, so uh, sometimes sometimes, you're in a rough enough spot and backed into a dark enough corner that no matter who's willing to help you, you're willing to uh, take their help.
2: That's that really sets you apart from a lot of high fantasy. It's it's not the good guys versus the bad guys, is it?
0: No, it's not. You know, um, I, I really do prescribe to the idea that, that you know, good and bad are are kind of uh, thrown around uh, pretty liberally. Um, the reality is that. Uh, everything's situational, and it's about our humanity and and how we handle it, and at times we're at our best, and at times we're at our worst, and when you really get yourself into trouble is when you expect one or the other out of a certain person, because uh, you just, you never know uh, what the situation's going to dictate someone does.
2: So who are Luke's allies?
0: Well, as Luke starts, you know, he, in the very first chapter of the book, he meets uh, Omar, who is a um, uh, also somewhat of an outsider. He's not from in town. Um, and Luke stro- wanders along and Omar helps him out. And he sort of serves as the compass for Luke's morality to make sure that despite all these other people that surround them that are sort of helping him out, that. He, that Luke maybe might have this example to look over and see that uh, Omar is not succumbing to to all the temptations of the ease of just going along with these unsavory, you know, thieves and you know assassins that that he's sort of fallen in the mix with. Uh, and then later on, you know, as the story develops, he he does. I mean, it's not he's not completely surrounded by awful people. Um, all the time. And many of the awful people, you just have a misconception of. The, very, the first book is very much written from Luke's perspective. And uh, I very much allow the reader to um, only get a glimpse into what Luke is thinking. So as the story develops, he really does uh, um, have some misconceptions. Do we change people? Which, which we all do on? like. Well, just, uh, you know, uh, he makes a lot of assumptions, uh, just like all of us do, about uh, people that, and, and many times they turn out to be wrong. People he thought were just awful uh, turn out to be all right, and, and, and people he decides to trust early on, he finds out to take advantage of it. And the reader follows along that journey. As you read my books, you uh, that's part of the fun, is you, you begin to analyze, you know, through Luke's eyes. You're like, would I would I trust this person even though Luke is, or would I not trust them even though he doesn't? Uh, is he making the right decisions, those kind of
1: things. That's part of what keeps a keeps a reader engaged, is uh, uh, being able to identify with the, the situations and problems that the character encounters. This approach also makes for a very character-driven storyline. as contrasted to a, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I'm in bad shape.
2: A political drama or, you know, the big stories.
1: Yeah, it's it's... There, there are character-driven mm-hmm. stories and there are plot-driven stories, and this seems to be leaning more on the character side.
0: Yeah, very much so. You know, um, the storyline is uh, it, it has several main plot arcs that, that begin and end at different points as the ten books goes along. So there very much is a larger story at play. And in the first book, which is really more of an introduction to the world, an introduction to Luke, uh, there's there's many plots that open up in book one that really you you don't realize that you have knowledge of them until the until the second book or the third book. I I wrote them so that never-endingly you're going oh man I read about that in the last book and you have to go back because at the time you just think it was you know you you pass over it thinking it's just a coincidence. Um, so there there is a, a larger set of plot lines and that are connected but the most important thing and and that's why i would agree with you it is very character driven is is the characters themselves because i've based them on my personal experiences very much are rooted in uh situations within humanity you know um there's there's a lot of uh fiction out there that very much uh uh, thrives when it comes to characters because of their relationships and their their dialogue and their connections but there's you know I almost still have this leftover thing from reading literature of the the earlier part of the last century that really makes me want to encapsulate a moment of humanity rather than the characters themselves, so it may be about you know it may be more about uh the, an entire situation and the familiarity of, of the struggle of humanity, as opposed to uh, just the connection of two characters. Uh, you almost don't have to know certain characters that well in order to really empathize with what. So I, I heard
1: uh, I heard a number in there while you were talking about how the how the uh, story progresses from book to book. You mentioned the number ten. Yeah, you have. So you're halfway through your story arc at this point, or approximately halfway.
0: That's correct. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the truth is like uh, you could almost break the book into three trilogies. (laughs) Excellent, Um, because they do they Mm -hmm. do chronologically happen in that order, and in fact, a a great deal of the story arcs in books one through three uh, do come to an end at the end of the book three. And the same for, for the middle middle three and the last three. There's there's almost uh, plots within each trilogy that do come to conclusion. But then there's the, a larger story arc that covers the entire nine books. Um, and then, of course, the 10th book, I've always said 10 books because the 10th book really is um, uh, a resolve mm-hmm. to the story mm-hmm. that I do intend to write. Uh, but it takes place... So you're going um, to use
1: an entire novel with, to write a denouement.
0: Basically, yeah. Well, yes, uh, considering yes, the size you know, of the story, yeah, that's, it, that's it, about it as much needs to right. Yeah. Now I may, you know, I'll probably be that guy that writes the nine and says he's going to write that tenth and never does. Oh, don't,
1: don't but I do that, I, to I don't
0: people. Think
1: I, like David I, like no, I don't want to do that. Hey, he's hey, trilogy. He's <laughs> uh, he's
2: finishing it. He's writing it now.
1: Oh, he is. Yeah, okay. he is. So <laughs> right.
2: you know, anything can happen. Good for David. Good for good for
0: Rocky it really wasn't a choice in the number really when i when i first started i sort of plotted Mm -hmm. out exactly what i wanted to happen i'd had this in the works for a long time in my head i just had never started writing the series and it just sort of as i as i you know uh plotted everything out it, it worked out to be this this number of books given the way given my uh style of writing and and you know how long do we so this is be
1: one of those life-changing things when you launch on a uh, embark on a project this big uh, uh, of this kind of scope
2: especially for a dyslexic kid
1: <laughs> I'm 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 right, suitably right, impressed exactly. first I mean, of all, you know but but uh, I mean this has to have been a life-changing thing it must have had some profound ramifications
0: you know it was it was it was what it, it was almost like relieving uh you know as a kid uh, I had struggled like I said you know what I'm in high school and my mother's reading, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird to me. I'm, I, I, I struggled on grade level reading wise for years. I probably was on about a fourth grade level when I graduated high school. Um, went on to college, and that's when I was just like, well, I got, I got to get some help. Um, and my, my version of help the first time around in college was to get a degree in art. Uh, that way I could avoid as much reading as possible. And then, uh, you know, sometime in my my late 20s, I sort of just challenged myself to, you know, continue my education, I I almost in defiance of my disability. I mean, that's really what a lot of this is. In defiance of my disability, went back to school, got my degree in education, went back, taught kids that had dyslexia just like myself, did that a few years. And then I just decided I was going to write these books. And luckily, there was speech-to-text software, which is how I started so I started working with speech-to-text software, writing the first book I ever wrote, um, and of course got to the end and it was horrible. <laughs> uh, threw that away, wrote another mm-hmm. one, It, you know, and really that process of using that software, you know, eventually about through the second book, my hands just sort of went down to the keyboard and I was like, okay, I'm more comfortable with this and this is a little quicker. And by the time I got to the Luke Vanderloft books, you know, I, I, I you know, I would like to think I could string a hundred thousand words together into what I wanted to do. Oh, That's a... so it's been, it's it's been a challenge, you know, and it's, it really is. I mean, it's just, a, I'm elated at just w- what I've accomplished uh because it, it uh, I mean, for me personally, it's just, uh, I never wanted to be held back. Uh, you know, even since I was in first grade, when you get told, if you're like, you you know you're you're not going to first you know first grade and you know you would you would think uh, it wouldn't be that devastating but you know it was it was uh, it's always been a challenge and difficult.
2: The audiobooks would have uh, saved your mother a lot of trouble, but I think having having your mother pay that kind of attention to you had to be good for, for a young boy.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, it's great. It was great, and you know it's it's funny you mention audiobooks. the the. One reason I'm sort of very much my influences are all that, that sort of like uh, early uh, 20th century and, and older books is because when eventually you could go to the library and get books on tape, mm-hmm. not even on you know CD, that's all the library had. You know, I, I couldn't even I couldn't even find Stephen King or Dean Koontz or something in the 90s. I mean, libraries just didn't have those books. So you were stuck on the classics. That was my influence. Because before that, you know, I as a kid, I would just like look at comic books and make up the stories. I couldn't read them. I mean, that's very much what inspired a lot of of the stories that I'm writing now. Is is just trying to figure out what was what going on. What an interesting on
1: adventure! I mean, your personal your personal struggle to to get to the point where you could write a series of novels is uh,
2: that's comparable that's to an any a... adventure you've written. <laughs>
1: That's marvelous. Right, right. I'm...
0: Well, you know, I talk a lot about dyslexia and, and one of the, you know, it took me years to sort of try to describe exactly what it was because everyone who isn't dyslexic sort of has a misconception and then everyone that is, is a little different. But for me, the best example I always give people is I, as a kid, I could be in my room and I could look across the room and I could see this giant rat that had this a strange tail on it. And in my head, I was just desperate to try to figure out how a giant rat with a strange tail got in my room. And I would almost go through this Sherlock Holmes dissection of every possibility that could possibly exist. And then in the end, I would sort of, my mind would focus and I would go, oh, that's actually just a pile of clothes and a stuffed animal. It's not a real giant rat at all. And it's in those moments of confusion that I created in my mind all these imaginary things that really became valuable to me. Really became something wow. that uh, I realized other other kids couldn't do. Um, so it's kind of funny. The dis- the disability really was a gift. Um, very much so. I you know something I would never uh, want to change. Uh, and pretty much is the is the at the center of all my.
1: Creativity. You were you were put through a forge. Other yeah. people are educated and they go out into the world. And go about their lives, and you were forged. This is a tremendous thing to overcome. It's, well, and, uh, and
2: it's not easy. I mean, oh. no one asked the metal if it wanted to be stuck in the in the fire and hammered. On. That's right. Yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. Sometimes I get stuck in my car and can't get out, and then I then I'm then I'm like, why? <laughs> it's you know, or I ask, you know, I'm constantly having to ask my wife, "Can you open this coat for me? I can't <laughs> figure it out." You know, so I do have you know, there's some things I just still cannot, my mind will not allow me to do. Um, and that can get frustrating, but you know, luckily most of the important things I can do on my own.
1: So, uh, now that you've got this many books done and in print, and you can find them on amazon.com. We are talking to Rocky Perry, the author of the Luke Vanderloft series, uh, on Krypton radio. This is, you're listening to the event horizon, uh, now that you've got this many books done and in print, you have launched a Kickstarter. Tell us about that project. Right. I'm, I have watched the, the trailer for the thing, and it's drop-dead gorgeous.
0: So, so what happened was uh, uh, about almost a year ago, I was approached by a uh, filmmaker who has a small production company here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, named Trey Cook. He had formerly worked for Jupiter Entertainment that has an office not only in L.A., but also in Knoxville. And he just cornered me at lunch and was like, man, we've got to make uh, something and put it on film. And, and I sort of followed his lead, and we, we, we you know, sort of creeped along the project. We finally threw a shoot together, shot once, and met back, and we were like, well, we've got to put something together. This is great. Um, so the Kickstarter is to create a web series, which we determined was the best format for, for what we're doing, even though um, cinematically this thing uh, looks like any feature film. I mean, he, he's amazing. Uh, I don't I haven't really seen too many web series that are, that are doing things cinematically the way we are. Um, but essentially the, the Kickstarter, we're trying to raise a modest amount of money so that we can try to pay to finish the post-production and a few more of the shoots we have to do. It would be nice to be able to pay some of these actors. We've had over fifty cast and crew uh, here locally that have done everything for free. Um, and right now we have the first three episodes. The first one's already out. Uh, you can go to YouTube, uh, Luke Vanderloft, and view it. And then we'll release the second episode here in about ten days, and then the third episode will be right near the end of the Kickstarter. Which and how ends how do these March line 1st?
2: up with the books? It's not the whole. The whole. It's not no, the whole, whole book. You know, chapter.
0: <laughs> oh not even close no you know i started writing the screenplay for what we were going to shoot the web series and of course the episodes are about you know 10 15 minutes each so the first season actually covers chapters 1 through 12 of the first book so there's ton- there's tons, and, short tons of short materials that we haven't actually tapped into yeah yeah okay. the first 12 uh... you know so much so much happens in this series and, and and as I, as we as I started working in film and writing in film, uh, there's just so much I could embellish on. I mean, really, the web series um, sort of adds to the what's going on behind the scenes outside of, of Luke's perspective, which the books are written mm-hmm. from Luke's perspective. So, you know, we were able to say, well, what's going on here when Luke's not in the room? So, so we sort of added that, and the next thing you know, we have a we have sort of added to the story more so than, than what's even in the books, which is kind of funny. I think uh, when someone normally makes a movie out of a book, they end up cutting everything. And uh, when we're making a web series, we're sitting here adding. So I don't know. Maybe the first five seasons might be the first book. I, I, I mean, Casting I has
2: to be an issue. Uh, you know, I know it's hard enough to cast a centaur in Hollywood. In Knoxville, I can't imagine it.
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh, I know. It's funny. We, uh, we had a casting call. I've never done that. <laughs> not no not just Sondheim. Not a lot not of else. But any, we were like we were like basically we said we had an array of characters come and, and try out, and we had about fifty actors show up and just got. I'm telling you, there are some amazing talents, and everyone we cast, their line would be the same. They're like, we never do work here. We always have to mm-hmm. drive three hours to do work. The, you know, and and of course, Atlanta has a lot of film production, and that's yeah. where they almost always go. So they were all ecstatic and fantasy. Just you know, it, it's it's funny because probably when I was uh, growing up in the you know early '90s, uh, fantasy wasn't nearly as cool as it is now. So it's much easier to find so many people who want to be involved in the project than say it was back then, before sort of the the era of superhero movies and everything else sort of launched. Uh, fandom into the norm
2: that started with star wars right? i can i can put a
0: date on it well, yeah i think know? so i think I, I think it just sort of hyper accelerated somewhere along the way um to, to where now it's just a marvelous world to live in uh, you know if you're a big fan of, of yeah, when did
1: geek become mainstream i'm just i'm constantly amazed I, i'm by telling that.
0: you it's, it's something happened
2: yeah, yeah it, well yeah, yeah. you know it because we run your computers <laughs> you, you know you are at the geek's mercy so so geek.
0: I know I know what's well, funny when I when I first got online in 91 it was on a bulletin board system uh FidoNet and I think there were probably about like 3000 I
1: remember FidoNet
0: and then 10 years later it's like everybody's on Oh online. yeah uh,
1: FidoNet uh uh for those listening FidoNet was the precursor to uh precursor to the internet I mean it basically uh the information was bicycled from server to server, and it was relayed back and forth right. uh, because there was no. In- and
0: back then, no, there was, was the no. Internet. Internet. Yeah, it had been around. Yeah,
1: I was, yeah. I was, was like really Genie. on Genie. No those were my
2: Genie days, and then there was uh, CompuServe.
1: I think. Mm. Yeah, okay. but there was no the the connections from one server to the next. It, it wasn't. Uh, it was more like it wasn't um,
2: wired. It, you had to. There had to be somebody in, yeah,
1: in there it, it, periodically. Uh, a server would would make a phone call to the next node down the line and transfer yeah. everything that uh, transfer all the messages that were tagged going in that direction. I used to run a server called the Tesseract server and it was on a, a similar network that was run by radio shack uh, color computer enthusiasts. <laughs> and I I ran the I ran yeah. the biggest yeah. server on the west coast. I and, think I've yeah. seen it. It's
2: oh, nice, nice. it's a piece of equipment there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's that black yeah. hunk of junk in the in our our lab.
2: Hey, still runs.
1: Still runs. I just I just repaired it. I just uh, right. it had it started out at, uh, when I bought it in nineteen eighty. It had four K of RAM.
0: <laughs> oh, and that seemed like a lot at the <laughs> yeah. time. Oh yeah. yeah anyway, yeah. well, I remember there was a, I mean there was an era even when I was growing up in the nineties where using the word gig was like the punchline yeah. to a joke. Like that was a joke, you know. People don't realize how, how far we've come. And it's funny, all my old Bullet Forums mm-hmm. and BBS friends uh, from back in those days, uh, several of them have donated to this Kickstarter. So it's it's that's a great thing to have people that you knew before the internet, even though technically it wasn't, you know, that are still around well, it was, that you've met online. And that that does show there boundaries. was an internet,
1: but only universities were connected to it.
0: Yeah, but that's but that's so right. very
2: that's true. Yes. But some of, of my very enduring friends in my life have been some of my very early uh, computer buddies.
1: But to have friends boy. from that far back coming forward to help you now—that's very impressive stuff. Speaks
2: and as well I said,
1: I've, I've been—I did look at the uh, the little bit of footage that you did include in the the Kickstarter pitch video, and uh, boy, mm-hmm. that's great stuff. And it was interesting seeing Luke Banderloft in the flesh, so to speak.
0: Would it and make any sense?
1: That had to have been a surreal experience seeing your creation stand up.
0: Oh, standing on, standing on, on set directing the, the, the thing that you wrote is, is ridiculously surreal. And, and it's funny because everyone recognizes it there too. I mean, there are times on set where uh, I get emotional and everyone realizes I am and, and why, you know, it's, it's really just a powerful thing to have your childhood imagination come to life. Um, And especially to have all these very talented actors and and crew and lighting people and sound people doing it all for you for free. I mean, uh, you know, there's the hope of money in this, but many, many people involved from the very beginning, know they won't be paid this first season and uh it means a great deal uh so so it's tremendously surreal to see luke and omar you know walk into the inn that you wrote on paper uh you know and you've been thinking about that scene and and the significance of that scene and, and the reflection of what that was in your life uh it's it's just it's a little bit magical It really is
2: It's just as magic for the big guys, you know. We hear over and over again from, you know, like J.K. Rowling seeing set up Hogwarts for the first time. It was was just as astonishing for her on a large scale, and it doesn't matter. You've walked into your world that used to be just be in your head. Yeah, (laughs) it's amazing.
1: Oh, that's a real shock to your system.
2: At least you have you give yourself permission to make this, and you know, pity the poor guys who who are making something from somebody else's uh, book and they will Um, never get paid for it. You, um, you have the prospect of this going big if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, I hope so. You know, it's funny because uh, that's one of the things I, I I happily could fall back on is they would question, are you sure we can change this dialogue? Are you sure you can change this? And I was like, I'm, I'm the writer. (laughs) Yes, we can. It's like you trust me, do it this way. You know, it's, it's just funny because all of them were used to very much having to default to someone's creativity. Well,
1: what
2: a blessing there. for them, huh? You,
1: you, know, the, you mean uh, right. defaulting yeah. to somebody's yeah, creativity like, where no, the no. person who did that creation wasn't present in the room, right? That's, not, not that, that the creativity correct. wasn't yeah. there, but that the people who were responsible weren't
0: there. Oh no. Or would ask. And very much, I tell you, we had, we had some amazing actors who their collaboration is unreal. The best. The best actors uh, don't don't act very much, and they spot on know their job, and they do exactly what they need to do. And it's like, within the span of a couple of minutes, they've evolved the scene into exactly what you know you need it to be. Um, so so it was just super fun working with everybody involved.
2: Well, it just proves their professionality. They're 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 real pros, and, and they're getting. Getting their big chance to prove
1: it. Tell us about your lead actor, who's playing Luke Vanderloft.
0: So Luke Vanderloft is is played by uh, a guy named Cole Sweden, um, and Cole, uh, here in this region, is actually a DJ. That's that's his his primary fame, and he's he's probably the most famous cast member we have. His primary fame comes from uh, DJing, uh, you know, this electric dance music, which I'm not a big uh electric dance music guy that he is like a uh, top of his game here um uh, and he has a little group strangely called uh cutlass cult right so it was almost like fate that this guy gets cast as the main pirate in in the must uh, movie love that so and then, wow, awesome i know it's crazy what's funny after our first shoot he was like i think i'm gonna do a dj <laughs> in costume and i was like yeah that's a great idea man go for it so he he's a local uh, or really regional DJ, um, and he also is just an amazing graphic artist. He ended up doing all of the the posters for us, all the art you see on Kickstarter. He, My God, he did it. So we have so many people that are like multitaskers and just multi talented, and he he's really you know I mean you run across those creative individuals every once in a while that and and they're driven uh, maybe as much as as Myself, um, and you just know there's there's something inside him pushing him, and he he's one of those guys. He's he's as special as as they come, as far as people I've met in in my life. So, how long
1: did it take him to uh, to figure out Luke Benderloft and and get the character in his head?
0: Well, like it's funny, he's like a lot of actors. One, he didn't want to read the source material. He was like, I he's like, I'm afraid I'll read too far along the character's evolution. So it was really just became picking my brain, for, you know, through the entire, uh, uh, you know, beginning of the process and just asking me questions and he would read the script and, you know, he would, he would be like, what's my mindset here? What's, you know, what is he curious about? And then he really sort of got it and, and tried to figure me out because of all the characters, uh, Luke very much reflects a, a lot of who I am. Uh, so, so he just, I think in a lot of it, he also quietly studied me and, and, and these sort of things. So uh, he definitely did his homework, work, and, and he very quickly had grasp of what we were trying to do. A lot
1: of the video, in fact, is music. There's not a lot of spoken dialogue in it. And the music is motion picture theatrical, soaring and stirring. Tell us about the, the guy who composed that music and
0: how you found him. Well, we have several different individuals who, who oh i see the music um the filmmaker i work with trey what, his background uh-huh. is what's editing, what's, right? what's trey's so, full name and
1: he trey cook okay Trey cook
0: and his and his little production company is called ah cookbox hookbox okay um cookbox yeah cookbox so he um you know when he edits he he basically makes all the musical decisions which is which is okay, but at the same time, I'm always like, hey, why don't you use this person we know? And he's like, well, I'll think about it. And it's always his, but it's always great. Um, So he selects from different artists, uh, many of which are either people he's worked with in the past, which I'm Mm -hmm. not real familiar with, or it's individuals that uh, we know. Like, for instance, in in episode one, Gary Poole, um, who has been uh, composing music for years uh, he's on SoundCloud mm-hmm. under maybe uh, uh, Tenpenny Fish. Um, he's amazing uh, here locally. And then, of course, uh, there's another band here, um, uh, Birds with Fleas. You can look them up on YouTube. They're great. Um, so really, we've just picked some, some people locally that we're using, um, which has kind of mm-hmm. been our theme this entire project. You know, we want to pour as much attention into the talent pool that we have in this region as we possibly can because uh, we feel like we have enough to pull something off of course the irony is we've gone all in I mean w- with this Kickstarter and everything' we're, this really will be a test as to whether or not you know people will support this talent
1: how is the how is the Kickstarter doing so far
0: the Kickstarter is good you know we we went very unconventional on mm-hmm. with the 60-day Kickstarter which if you, if you know anything about Kickstarter or, or you know, have been there, done that, bought all, the t-shirt. The first thing they tell you is they're like, they're, yeah, yeah. They're like, do the 30 day. Well, you know, we kind of bucked the system and we said, we're we with the 60 day. So in these first 30 days, we very much got support from friends, uh, family, some people who knew the cast locals, a few of my author friends and this sort of thing. And then we get a lot of, well, we'll, we'll back you later on. I, uh, um, one of, uh, Bob Salvatore, you know, who has told me three times, he's like, I, he's like, I can't, he's like, I'm not going to back you until the last week. I'm like, okay. Um, so there's lots of people that just want to wait and I get now why the 30 day is better, but it's worked out for us. Support's been good. I think we're at about 27 or 28%. Mm-hmm. We've got about a month to go. Um, and then we have a couple of events coming up, so I know we'll get there. Um, it'd be nice to uh, more than get there, but, you know, we'll, we'll take the support we get. Um, what events are you with... going to? We have uh, in uh, three weeks, um, the weekend, the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, there's a multi-fandom convention uh, here in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Conuga. Um, and it's a big regional event. It's sort of a blossoming convention. It's sort of a mid-size, maybe about four or 5,000. Um, lots of um, writers, actors, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, and we have quite a – we have a bunch of panels we're going on there. We're, we're promoing a bunch of our stuff there. We have a cosplay group that's going to be there. And then we're going to be screening the first three episodes, including premiering the third episode, and that'll also be where the launch of, of my fifth book, and the Luke Vanderbilt series is. Um, yeah, yeah, it'll be great. And then the week after that, we have a couple of television appearances, uh, here, um, just regional television stations, uh, I think NBC and, uh, uh, CBS. So we're, we're and those are in the last couple of days of the, of the project. So, I hope we're in a really good (laughs) mood. I hope
1: so, too.
2: You're you're dead on. That's that's exactly when you should be
1: doing that. Yeah. We found out by experience that uh, 30 days for a Kickstarter is too short. I mean, they say 30 days, but uh, uh, 30 days only works if you've already been pumping the handle for about 30 to 45 days before you even throw the switch. I agree
0: wholeheartedly. And it's you know that it it is it's such a challenge and it's and it's a grind and people don't realize how hard it is to get anyone to click on that green donut button and the difference that they would make. But but you know what nothing nothing in life that's worthwhile is, is easy. So we take on the challenge and and you know we'll make it. But I agree, 30 days. You better have done 50 days of of, of work in a row preparing for that 30 days. Uh, because Kickstarter's are not easy. they're they're not even close to to uh, you know, the simple. the
1: instructions that they give you on how to do it on the Kickstarter uh, you know Kickstarter right. uh, um, uh, homepage uh, really doesn't even come close to describing what you actually have
0: to do. No, I agree. And you know what helped? What I tell you what helped me was the beginning experience of publishing my first book and realizing that. No one's gonna read it on their own. no one no one's gonna just suddenly decide to read your book. You're gonna have to get out there and market a little bit and convince you know some people to read. and then you're gonna have to foster those first fans quite a bit before they pass along that information. And all the lessons that my team and I learned about how hard it really is to promote a product and get people to step outside their comfort zone of, say, the five authors they read all the time or the idea of giving money to something that's different than say, you know, what they would Mm -hmm. normally give money to. Um, once you sort of understand how difficult it is, we went into the Kickstarter very much understanding how difficult it was going to be. And that's helped us a great deal because it would just be very disheartening to go in with the kind of attitude I maybe went into publishing my first book with and realizing just, you know how immensely difficult it is to get someone to push a button. One of the
1: things that attracts people to a Kickstarter campaign is is making it look good. Yeah, everything you've got looks fantastic. You have some really strong visual designers working for you, costume design included. And you mentioned cosplay, uh, cosplay event. Who who's your costume designer? How well, long did it take what? this person to? to help you develop the look of your characters?
0: Well, initially I did the sketches for what they should look like. And and it really, it was, it was. Oh, that's right. Art degree. And, and we took those. <laughs> yeah, I had an art degree. Right. So, so, so really I, I, I mocked up all the costumes as to what each of the characters would look like. We then matched those, those uh, mock-ups with really, uh, almost like a, almost like Pinterest. We went and pinned sort of, What we found on the internet of what would look like what and then we just went on a shopping spree and tried to pull that together we also worked with a costumer and and a friend of mine uh valley cross out of knoxville uh she was a long time like uh theater and rent fair person we had some people locally who just volunteered their their theater wardrobes Uh, a couple of the cast members worked at theaters um and and really sort of pieced everything together from that um you know, the the look very much was my vision. I knew what I wanted. I wanted this uh sort of this mix mash of the nineteen twenties and the eighteen mm-hmm. fifties.
1: So you were your um, own art director. You know which when, is an, an an amazing advantage. Yeah. You're not only directing
0: it is right, right. On the set and and costuming. That's I, I really um I was very picky in that sense because again, when you bring people in and you say fantasy they, they think, think you mean, mean
1: Tolkien-esque
0: Tolkien-esque yeah. European fantasy and uh, I knew that's not that's not what it, what I wanted I mean you can look at any of the video on the Luke Vanderloft trailers and you mm-hmm. see Americana uh, in it um, maybe a little Victorian Europe but I mean definitely you're not thinking Lord of the Rings or, or you know something much more classically this is not your
2: pappy's D&D
0: Oh, there's
1: a log line. No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, Susan's really good at coming up with log lines. She came up with, she came up with ours. Uh, sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh,
0: that, that is good. That is yeah, that is good.
1: How long is it going to be between web episodes once you get into production?
0: Do you think? Well, of, of course, the first three will be out every ten days. So the first episode's out right now. Uh, The second episode will be out, I believe, around the 11th or 12th. Um, And then, of course, after that, it'll be the whatever that would be, the the 22nd, which is the the weekend we're going to. So you're shooting like mad. Uh, But but those first three episodes is what we paid for. So with assuming the Kickstarter goes off without a hitch, which we're very confident everyone's going to come through for us. The fourth episode would come after a slight hiatus, so we wouldn't have ten days. Mm-hmm. Then the fourth one, we're really shooting for April would be when we come back, and that'll be the remainder of the season. And they would be out every. Sounds ten like days. you're gonna hit. So we'll take about. Six sounds weeks like you're gonna hit Dragon Con, huh? Yeah, you know it. It would be great. We we have our request in to to do some things at DragonCon. Uh, I haven't been down there in about uh, four years. And um, every we just made a commitment a couple of years ago that we can't go anywhere that um isn't going to at least uh allow us to come and invite us and not have to pay our way in because there's just too many people on our team uh so dragon con we're sort of still waiting around on this con nuke is great they're they're the best and about four or five thousand is exactly where you want a convention for someone like myself that's not say as well known mm-hmm. as uh you know. A TV series that's on a major network, um, so so it's right up our alley. We're, we'll also be at MonsterCon, which is in the Carolinas in July, run by Dave Harlequin, um, and th- that'll be our first time up there, and we're excited about it. Uh, DragonCon, I'm still I'm just waiting for the email. Good luck with that. We'll, we'll see.
1: So, have you gotten a yeah, lot of good so. public reaction when you when you appear at conventions?
0: You know, we, I do, which which is great. There's two things I love to hear as, as somebody who not everybody has heard of. One is I love when they say, hey, I, I know Luke Vanderloft. I saw, I saw that online. I saw it on TV. I, I heard that about that on the radio. Um, that's always super cool for people to just to know who I am. Um, but even when they don't, convention goers who are um, readers – they're, they're out to meet you that's that's what they come to the conventions for that we go to they'll show up and they very much want to know about your work they, they want to hear your the rundown of what things are about um, and then those that have read your series um, always have you know a load of questions I tell you what's funny is when I when I do a lot of business online it's a different group of people at conventions it's very much, uh, sort of deadwood book readers who, who want to hold the book in their hand and they want to talk to you and they want to ask their questions to you. And online, you, you get mostly e-readers. Uh, and it's almost, a, it's a different group of people and they seem to have different questions and interest. And, uh, uh, It's just an interesting, it's an interesting uh, difference. What do you think about the uh,
1: dynamic of the, the two different audiences?
0: Well, it, it's funny if you'd asked me before I, I started writing, I, I would of course been a, uh, you know, well, I prefer, you know, I prefer a book in my hand. And, but once you're, you know, you, the little money I do make comes from online, does come from eBooks. Uh, it comes from, you know, I've met so many friends and and readers and other authors that live in the UK and, and Italy and Germany and India. And, and people I never would have met if it wasn't for the fact that on Amazon, my books are available all over the world. Um, you know, after about 20 countries where I sold a book, I, I stopped counting. But that's one of the coolest things in the world is to think, you know, someone is reading your book around the world. I, n- I never would have thought that as a, as a 12-year-old who, who could, you know, was reading, uh, you know, Bernstein Bear's Christmas and struggling to be where I am, and, and to think someone's in you know Turkey, you know, reading my book, and to be able to connect with those people because of Facebook, it's it's really just amazing. Thank I'm, God
2: for the internet is all I can say. I've met you know, the most right. wonderful people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you you worry about you know axe murderers or whatever when you meet your 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 Facebook you friends, but really, really, ninety nine point nine percent of them are fabulous.
0: When I tell you who also gets a lot of credit is Amazon, right? So Amazon, um, who, who may be single-handedly has changed the way publishing is works successfully. Um, they've taken the selectivity that the traditional five houses have always had and basically said, well, we'll let the market decide whether or not the, the writer's worthy. Is the book any good? And, and, and let everyone decide. Um and what's really cool about Amazon is my books can be bought in print anywhere in the world. So that's even cooler. I mean, the idea that I, I've never stepped foot in, uh, you know, India, but somebody could actually, you know, physically order a copy of my book, and it'll be printed there and mailed to them just blows my mind. I mean, it's, it's really amazing what has happened as far as the monetization of the individual. That's, that's just one of the coolest things about modern society. Uh and and I'm certainly thankful for it. I mean, it, it, it's responsible for my livelihood. So I'm I'm very it. And happy it's about you
2: know, it. responsible for, for the the revival of literacy in my opinion. People are reading again.
1: Yeah, yeah, because and they can. Season. It's 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 something that's accessible in a new way that that w- what never was there before.
0: Oh, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, the, the downside of course is just like music. Where certain, you know, not only did the big companies start losing money when it came to selling music because everybody, no one bought, you know, CDs anymore. Um, the same holds true for uh, writers. There, there were certain people who lose money in all this. I know I was talking to uh, Kevin Anderson, who, uh, you know, wrote some of the Star Wars books. Did that mm-hmm. took over the Dune series. Um, and he was talking about how the, the greatest gift he had was being able to be traditionally published so that he had widespread exposure and being able to publish himself so that he has a high profit margin. And he's lucky in that sense, as opposed to, say, uh, Bob Salvatore, who very much is under lock and key. And, and he's living with the same you know, profit margin, even though he would kill if he just – put his own stuff out at you know uh so so there are people who are losing money and there are people who are gaining money but overall i think it's best for the readers i mean that's what it really comes down to more variety more selection is better for all of us whether it's music or tv or the you know web or you know web series or books you know uh, there's something for everybody out there now, and you can just, there's just a million choices, which I think is good for the rest. Rocky
1: Perry, thank you for joining us on the Event Horizon this evening. We're so very glad you were able to join us. Uh, you have been listening to the Event Horizon with your hosts, Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox. Our guest this evening has been Rocky Perry, author of the Luke Benderloft series, and the hopefully, the winner of a new Kickstarter to help pay for the rest of the first season of the Luke Banderloft and the McFarvin Pirates series. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You have just heard episode 49 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for February 15th, 2014. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer, Susan Fox. Our guest this week has been Rocky Perry, author of the Luke Vanderloft series of novels available on Amazon.com, and the creator of the new Luke Vanderloft web series. This episode will air again on Sunday, February 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator, Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary, Christian Green McGuire. The Navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer, Christine Cherry and the role of the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction author, Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2014 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music And tonight's episode of X-1, The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.